Welcome to those who are joining. Uh, my name is Ambika, and I'm joined today by with Manisha, who's my co-host, and also Zach, who's our guest for today. And you're listening to the 20th episode of the Fintech Cafe. Just a quick reminder before we start, some housekeeping items. So the session, the format of the session is typically we do 30 minutes of discussion, and then we do a Q&A with the audience. And the Q&A will kick it off at 5.30 Pacific. And the manner would be that you can either come up on stage and you can ask a question, or you can send us a message through the back channel. Um, you can send me or Manisha a message and we'll read the question for you if you're not able to ask the question yourself. And if you are new to Clubhouse, I should announce that right now everybody's muted except the three of us who are on stage. Um, and if we bring you up on stage at that point, you'll be able to speak. Um, one Another disclosure is that today's call, call will be recorded. If you have any objections, please drop now. And another important disclaimer is that Manisha and I, we have our full-time jobs with one of the big banks, and our employer is not associated with this show, and we're not endorsing any products. Uh, the intention behind doing this every week is simply just to cultivate a community of thought leadership within FinTech. So with that, let's get started. I'll hand it over to Manisha for her introduction. Thanks, Ambika. And again, welcome, Zach, and welcome to our audience. We're very excited to have you all with us today. I work, uh, like Amika said, at a big bank uh, in the deposit space and do product management. And with that, I'm just going to kick it open. Zach, um, you have started a few companies by now. Um, in 2019, you started HM Bradley, focusing on simplifying finances. Could you start with your journey here and what led to HM Bradley? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my uh, my life in, uh, in startups and uh, and fintech is actually pretty long. So I've been in fintech a decade at this point, um, which is kind of weird to say. Um, and, you know, I think before that, uh, I actually started my first company when I was 18. So um, basically, I guess you could say I was sort of like, you know, uh, born born doing startups in some way. Although my first company, I wouldn't have really called a startup. I, uh, I started a company when I was in, really when I was in high school uh, and worked on it through college uh, and actually sold it when I was a junior in college. But that was e-discovery software, um, which is a really fancy way of saying that we scanned paper for attorneys and made it searchable. Um, and, you know, that was back in 2005. So uh, it's been a kind of a wild journey from there. Uh, I was born and raised in Louisiana. Uh, I didn't, didn't you know, grow up around startups or even knowing what startups were. Uh, after I sold the company, I, um, I became a little bit more familiar with uh, what banking was like for I guess the other the other side of the world, which the the joke is always that my mom worked at Regions Bank my entire life. Um, I walked into the same bank that my mom had worked at my entire life the day after I sold my first company, and for the first time, my name was Mr. Brunke, uh, and and that was probably the very beginning of the long journey that ended up kind of causing me to start Agent Bradley, and then I got into fintech uh, about a decade ago in 2011. I actually took an internship at a company called Fee Fighters which was building a Stripe uh, competitor, basically. We, we built a payments gateway. Um, and then ultimately, uh, from there, I went through Y Combinator uh, with my second company. And then I started a company called Spout uh, in 20, late 2012, um, which was a um, basically a Plaid competitor that did not work out nearly as well as Plaid, is the way I would describe it. So we, we built integrations into 825 banks, uh, and there was only a couple of us. Um, and I, I built most of those. And I think one of the things that I, I learned there that was fascinating and probably led to Bradley most was I was selling um, to one of the top five banks in the U.S. their own information back to them. 
So they were literally giving me their data and saying, can you parse this and hand it back to us in some format that we could read? Uh, and that was a big foray. And, uh, you know, my learning of how banks, you know, use or really don't use their customer information and ultimately um, sold that company to an investment bank, spent five years there as the CTO, um, you know, and uh, when I left, the, the goal was really to, um, you know, take a swing and build something that would last longer than me, hopefully. Uh, and when we did that, it was really talking to a lot of users. And I think ultimately the idea of Rachel Bradley was pretty simply put um, the idea to sort of align the incentives with the customers uh, in a way that nobody was doing in banking. And, you know, what, what we mean by that is that we actually say, if you have a direct deposit with us and you save more of what's coming in, we pay you more interest. And that interest rises as you save more. Uh, and the goal is, is really to build something that aligns itself with the consumer um, you know, builds a, a process that says, hey, if you're helping us grow deposits, we're helping you make more money on your money, uh, which are kind of the two things that, you know, both banks and consumers both say they want. Uh, and for some reason, for the last hundred years, I think we have thought have been diametrically opposed. So one question, Zach, when I was looking at your LinkedIn, it mentioned that you left your bachelor's degree unfinished. And I was curious to understand more about the psychology in terms of like, how do you feel confident to not rely on a degree to make it in life? Like at that young age, it's not something I think you even have today. So just curious if you could comment on that. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I, I sort of forget that's there sometimes. And then occasionally I'll have a friend point it out to me and laugh. And um, yeah, I mean, the long story short is um, that was a very... Uh, contentious decision in in my house. My uh, my mom and dad both. My mom had a, a GED, never got a college education. My dad had a high school education. Uh, and my mom's frequent terms when I was a kid was college is not for everyone, but it's for my kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, long story short, I sold my first company when I was a junior in college, and um, I sort of had a choice. I either I sold the company and took the earn out, and you know had what for me was a life changing amount of money or I kept working on it and didn't, uh, didn't leave school. Uh, and so for me, it wasn't actually, I, I remember, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. I, I went to one of my professors uh, and one of my, uh, one of my mentors in school and sat down with him and said like, what do I do? And you know, his, his basic advice to me was you're not going to learn anything else here in the next you know 16 months. You don't already know, just, just go have fun. Um, you can always finish this later if you ever need it. And um you know, at this point in my career, I usually say that uh, at this point, I think I'll just go for an honorary degree at some point. I don't, I don't think I'll ever need to go back. Um, but, you know, it's, it's certainly been, a, you know, a path that is, is probably not well-traveled from my perspective. And hopefully no looking back, right? Um, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this is a branding question with a great product, a great brand. Uh, everyone's probably, I've been curious. I did come across the story on the websites, but how did you come up with the name H.M. Bradley? It, is there a story behind it? And could you share it with us? Yeah, I, I wish it was a better story. Uh, you know, the, the truth is H.M. Uh, Bradley really came from a pretty simple idea, which is, um, this is my fourth company, as I pointed out. Um, one thing that they all had in common before this was that I named the company what I was certain the product was going to be called. And then eventually the product changed. Um, and so the company was named something different. And uh, one of my favorite entrepreneurs uh, in the world is Warren Buffett. Um, and he runs a company, obviously, called Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, and so I said, you know what? I'm going to name this like a holding company because if I do it right, it'll last a lot longer than me. Um, and it will probably do a lot more than I can ever imagine um, on the day that we name it. 
And so we literally, uh, I took the, the B and the H from Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, I looked at a list of a whole bunch of old sounding names uh, and I put together Halliman Bradley, uh, which to me sounded like it could be an old defunct textiles mill. Um, and uh, I liked I liked that HMB was available as a potential stock ticker. Um, and so I also bought HMBradley.com uh, along the way. And basically what happened was we did a bunch of user research. Um, we originally were advertising under a brand called Crux. Um, and we, we acquired a bunch of people and we did about a thousand user interviews. Um, and then, you know, when we went back and read the notes and about 25% of those interviews, somebody, uh, had, had scrolled all the way to the bottom of our website on our landing pages. And the only place that it said Halliman Bradley anywhere was the bottom of the website and the copyright. And it said copyright 2018 Halliman Bradley. And this was just when we were in test phase and, uh, about 25% of people said, what is that? Uh, and so when we called those people back and we asked them, why did you ask this? The answers we got were fascinating. They said, it sounds valuable. It, it sounds trustworthy. It sounds like it's been around a while. Um, and to me, that was all I needed to know. I was from that point forward determined to name this company H and Bradley, whether, whether my co-founders liked it or not. Um, and our creative director absolutely hated it when he first joined and we did all kinds of testing and we tried a lot of things and he was trying to name it something else. And, um, they finally gave in, uh, but it's it, honestly, it's been one of our biggest assets to date. Uh, you, you know, you see the name, you type it, you find us, uh, you misspell it, you still find us. Like all those things help a lot. And uh, we're not competing in a world of just, you know, massive SEO like a lot of these startups are. When you name yourself something like, you know, one or point or, you know, step or some other like very common word, it's just a lot harder to be found in an environment like this. Wow, what a great story. I love it. I was not expecting that answer. So thank you for sharing. Um, I want to also uh, understand more about your relationship with Max Levchin, um, who's, you know, famous co-founder, notably of PayPal and Affirm. He has, he's one of your investors. I was wondering how you met Max and how did you convince him to be one of your investors? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great story. And it's, it's also a terrible story at the same time. So, um, I met Max when I was working on Spout, um, and, uh, basically, uh, when we were looking to sell the company, Max was one of two people that we were looking to sell to, uh, and we got to know each other pretty well. And a firm, um, if you can imagine this, was about 12 people at the time. Uh, <laughs> and so he was like, hey, you know, come work with us, like sell us the company and like come work here. And, we, you know, the plan was really to build out basically Plaid inside of a firm and me leading that project. And I spent a lot of time with Max and I really got to know him. Um, and ultimately the... Uh, the outcome of those conversations where I kept asking him, what are you going to do when we come out of quantitative easing? Um, because my view in 2013, which now looks very naive, was that we can't stay in this low interest rate environment forever. Um, you know, like this, this can't possibly be real. Uh, and so my, my view was sort of, what are you going to do when you have to compete with a bank for cost of capital? Because ultimately, you know, as a consumer, your bank is your first choice. Typically, your bank has a much lower cost of capital. Uh, you know, and Max basically said, Hey, look, I'm really going to raise money. Don't worry about that. And, uh, I said, Hey, look, that's great. But that, that sounds like you're great at diluting me. I don't know about this. And I, I went a different route. Um, and so I could have been employee number 13 in a firm, uh, which would have probably netted me, you know, quite a, quite a lot of money. Um, and instead, um, uh, you know, ended up being Max was our first investor, but ultimately we just kept in touch along the years. Uh, I would, you know, I'd go hang out with him once every six months or so. And, catch up and kind of hear what's going on. And, and every time his answer to me would be, call me when you're ready to leave. You know, I know you're going to do something one of these days. And, uh, and eventually I did, I called him and I said, Hey, I'm leaving. 
I'm not going to come work for you. I'm not going to come work at a firm, but like I thought I would tell you. And, you know, he put a pretty good pitch to, uh, to come build this at HVF. And so I actually started out at HVF, which is his incubator as an EIR. Uh, and really the, the idea for, you know, for it kind of evolved while I was there. Uh, but so he, he put in money before I even knew what I was building. Um, and so he was, he was very much our, our first investor. And I guess also what you would call an angel investor because we had no idea what we were doing yet. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. I have a couple of questions now around product management um, and then I'll pass it back to Manisha on the revenue side. So for product, first question is, could you talk to us more about what customer problems you're targeting with HM Bradley and how, as in what products do you have? Yeah, for sure. I, like one of the big things that, that we kind of viewed as um, core to our offering from the start was being able to align ourselves with the customers in the way that we really want to create customers with sound financial habits. Um, and I look at it like we're trying to teach customers the same habits my parents taught me, which is by saving money, you compound money over time. And by compounding money, you eventually, you know, do you, you get rich the way most people do, which is slowly over a long period of time by doing the right things and building the right habits. Uh, and so the account product is really it's revolved around that. It's this idea that, you know, we we have, you have to have a direct deposit and then you have to save a higher portion of that direct deposit. Um, and then if you save up to 20% of what comes in, we actually pay you 3% interest. Um, and then when you look at what we do from there, I think one of the things that people thought was kind of strange is our second product was a credit card. Um, and, you know, people thought that was kind of weird, but in, in reality, like people still spend money. Um, and one of the things that we knew was um, when you're spending money and you're doing it on a debit card, you're essentially losing money. Uh, because the price of a credit swipe is baked into basically everything that you buy. And if you're not getting rewards back for those swipes, you're, you're essentially just losing out. And the way that we looked at it uh, was, hey, like you should be using a credit card. We should be able to look at what you're spending and maximize your cash back by looking at your top spending categories month over month. And so now, I mean, you've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of people do this now. Venmo did it after us. Now City, City has launched custom cash. You know, we, we started like working on this product three years ago. Um, so, you know, we, we've been talking about doing this like this way for a long time and we launched it before anyone else did. Uh, but really the idea is, is to build products that revolve around the consumer um, and not uh, products that, you know, sort of revolve around a P&L. Um, you know, and that, that's so much of what banks do typically is you, you see this, and I know that you two both work for a big bank, um, but you see this, this world where, every single product line has its own P&L and its own bonuses and everything else. And the way that H. Bradley looks at it is the customer is the center of our universe. And every product that we build is, is really focused around that customer. And then we tie those together so we can make the product better and better with the more things that they use rather than it being focused around each individual product line having to have its own you know, values. And so the way that we look at it is if you're an H. Bradley deposit account customer, and then you become a credit card holder, it gets to be a lot better product. Because what we do is we say, if you spend on your credit card and you pay it from your deposit account, it actually doesn't count against your savings tier at all. So now you're essentially getting the highest rates in the market on your on your savings just because you're spending with HM Bradley as well. And I think what we do is we really blur the lines between like, what are you getting out of just a credit card versus like, what are you getting out of your bank relationship holistically? And that's really the goal of kind of what we do and the way we think about building things. So how did you find your product market fit? I'm assuming that you first launched with the savings account product, right? 
We did, yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of time researching ahead of ever launching anything. And it's one of the weirder, or I, I, I don't think it's weird. One of the stranger things for what goes on in most of you know fintech these days, we were not one of those companies that tried to launch in six weeks and rush something to market. We really wanted to know that this was going to resonate. Uh, and so, as mentioned earlier, we did a lot of user interviews. We talked to a lot of people and we kind of asked what their pain points were. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we heard over and over again when people were talking about their bank was, you know, I'm not quite sure where I stand. I don't feel like they're aligned with me. I feel like we're kind of at this at this place where that what's good for them is not good for me and what's good for me is not good for them. And so, so much of what we built was really around like building those things into it. And so if you look at how we laid out the products, we actually started from day one knowing we're going to have credit and debit. Um, you know, but the debit card product is, is really, people look at it as a savings account. It, it is a checking account technically. Um, it's got a debit card attached to it, but we know our users don't use debit cards. Um, and so we knew that we had to fast follow with a credit card because if we wanted to make money, we needed to be able to lend money and we needed to be able to have some sort of spend on our card products. Um, and so really for us, it was about the research that we did ahead of time before launching anything, knowing what our customers were already using. Cause we knew that they were using credit cards on a daily basis. We knew that they were really only using debit cards to get cash out, you know, a couple times a year for the most part. Um, and, and we knew that what they were really looking for was a place that they felt like their incentives were aligned. And so we started that with the savings tiers. We actually continue it with what we call one click credit, which basically one click credit is really simple. But the idea is that rather than you coming to us and applying for a credit card, what you actually do is you opt in uh, to a soft pool. And so the same thing you would use with credit karma or something else but then we actually push you fully underwritten offers every single month for whatever that you're good for. Uh, and, you know, right now that's mostly just the credit card, but we have a couple other things in the pipeline uh, that, that should be launching in the next, you know, call it six, eight months. And the goal is really to, to be a place where you log in and you know exactly what you're good for across every single product that we offer. And there's no like opaqueness. There's no ambiguity to it. It's like, hey, you know, Monisha, this is what you're good for. Um, here's a $15,000 line of credit with a 14.9% APR. If you want it, take it. Or, hey, here's a mortgage. It's, you know, a million dollars and it's, you know, 2.85%. And I think that's really the goal of where Chibrelli is going is, is meeting the customer where they are um, by, by actually understanding them and growing with them over time. Got it. So you mentioned that your saving account is technically a checking account. Is it because there are no limits to how many withdrawals a person can have in a month? Like what, what makes it technically a checking account? Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, uh, it's just the, the, the overall structure of it. I mean, basically, so we, yeah, we don't have any limits. There are no withdrawal limits. Uh, it comes with a debit card. You can actually write checks against it. Um, so, it. I mean, it, it is fully just what you would think of as a typical checking account. Got it. And then last question I have before I hand it over to Manisha is why is your deposit account currently invite only? Because you offer a 3% APY, which is the largest in the country. So why is it invite only? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the short answer is we grew uh, way faster than we expected. So we had an outsized demand. Uh, to give you some idea, we launched the, launched the product last year um and we we raised a series a about 10 months ago and at the time i think we had about 18 million in deposits uh today we're getting close to half a billion um and you know we're, we're to the point now where we could grow probably hundreds of millions of dollars a month very easily um and our bank partner said hey this is like a lot of growth and like we've got to you know meet regulatory capital requirements other things can we slow this thing down and, and honestly it's prudent for us because what we can do is 
if we slow the deposit growth down, we still get to go out and lend those deposits. And that's how we ultimately make money. So it's really about building the best experience for our customers rather than just, you know, lighting money on fire, essentially. And so just in terms of shifting gears on that growth strategy, Zach, you mentioned, right, the credit products and the deposit products. In terms of how the fintech has come to play in the market, there's been a lot of unbundling of uh, the financial services products and rebundling. What are your thoughts on, you know, how you're making that work better for the customer? Because at the end of the day, the basic needs from the customer uh, remain, uh, but how are you creating that differentiation for them with the products that you're bringing out and continue to bring out? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think ultimately, you know, the short answer to that is that the, the way that, that we see the world here is there are essentially two ways in this world to make money and that's bundling things and unbundling things. Um, you know, and the bank is honestly the perfect place to be bundled. And one of the things that frustrated us about the current banking situation is that even though that I'm, you know, already a customer at one of the big five banks or whatever, when I go to get a new product, it's like I'm the first time I've ever met them all over again. I'm, I'm filling out the same application. I'm dealing with the same paperwork. It's like they, they forgot everything they already knew about me. I always joke that, um, you know, today banking is sort of like going on a date with your spouse and then having them say, so what do you do for a living? Um, you know, that, that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> and for us, I think the, the whole thing was to build a holistic relationship with the consumer and to remember them and to actually tell them, hey, this is what you're good for. We already know. You don't have to come to us and apply. You don't have to sort of, you know, what we call bow at the throne and ask for permission for something. Because ultimately, when you have a great customer, you just want to do more business with them anyways. Um, and so for us, it's about meeting that customer where they are and letting that customer know, you know, how we value them um, and, and not making it at all ambiguous to them. And I, I, I think I've mentioned this to you. You've got a few fans when it comes to the customer experience and what you've built with the tiers around your checking slash savings product. Could you share your sort of thinking around how that's built, what went into it, and how it's being received? Yeah, uh, tears was a crazy idea. Um, this was this is one of those things where uh, we were sitting around at HVF, just sort of imagining, you know, how we could do this differently. And the thing that we kept hearing just over and over again was like, I feel like what's good for the bank isn't good for me. And, you know, it's like they're trying to get me to spend. If you look at what all the neobanks are doing, most of those guys are saying, like, get paid early. And when you look at what that means, that doesn't really mean anything because you get paid early once and then you're in the same 14-day cycle. And so when, when people figure that out, and I think we, we kind of view customers as being very smart, you know, we said, look, how do we align the incentives and how can you make this truly good? And I think that was really where we started from. And so we were basically sitting around thinking of ideas. And it's like the truth is if you talk to a banker and you ask them what they want, they'll probably tell you they would like stable deposits growing very quickly with customers they could lend to. Um, you know, they, they don't want volatile deposits. They don't want them to, you know, to go away overnight. Um, they want them to be very stable and they would like them to grow. Um, and if you talk to a consumer, most of them will probably just say, I just want to make more money on my money. I don't care. And so the, the thought process with savings here was this idea of like, hey, what if we just said, if you're helping us grow deposits, we'll pay you more for it. And if you're not, we're going to pay you less. And it was just the simple idea of like, look, in, in insurance, we don't price an 80-year-old smoker the same way we price a 20-year-old runner. So why are we paying everyone the same rate in banking? And, and honestly, we didn't know if it would work. 
um, we, we basically went to a spreadsheet and we looked at everyone else's, you know, kind of public company data that we could find balances. And we said, okay, this is what we think this would balance out to. And we think ultimately we'll blend our cost of capital across those tiers and we'll end up somewhere in the middle. And, you know, that's really exactly what we've done. So it's, it's worked out really well. Um, you know, everyone sees 3% and they think, oh my God, how are you paying everyone 3%? And the answer is we're not. Uh, we have people that get 3%, certainly. There's a lot of users that get it. Uh, there's also people that fall into the 1% tier or the half percent tier, or the 2% tier. And that blends our cost of capital down across the entire user base. And that's really important for the way that our business works because now we have a cost of capital much more similar to a bank with a branch network. Uh, which means we've got a model that should be much more sustainable over the long period of time. And the pricing too. That's fantastic. Um, and then this is, I know we have about four minutes before we open up for audience questions. So Zach, this is uh, something that's close to my uh, interest. Uh, so selfishly, well, curious to get your take. You mentioned that you were a part of, uh, you had founded the startup Spout Finance. Uh, it was in the open banking space, maybe a little ahead of time uh, when you started that. Um, curious about your take on the concept of open banking and embedded finance and how that relates back to what you do at Aiton Bradley, um, especially now it seems like there's a lot of acceleration in that space. Yeah, boy, was that too early. Um, people <laughs> hated that business when I was doing it. I, I joke that when I was doing fintech infrastructure, no one liked it. Uh, and now that I'm doing fintech consumer, no one likes it again. Uh, you know, so luckily that's not quite true, but, uh, um, you know, wait it out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I have actually a lot of passion around this open banking idea and it's not really just open banking. It's really more a consumer having control of their information. Um, if you look at H and Browley and the way that we do, you know, everyone's got these things where, you know, log into, you know, to, uh, to a PFM tool, through their, uh, their bank login credentials. And I think it's a really terrible setup. I think it's just a bad idea. We actually built something to generate one-time use credentials or like one partner use credentials. So you could actually limit and retract access to data. Uh, and so if you go use Plaid, you can actually generate a set of app credentials um, that you use to connect to, to H and Bradley without actually them having access to your physical um, username and password, which we feel is very important because if we see a breach, then we'll know because it, it won't work on the actual website logging in. It only works through this API that we have specifically with the aggregators. Um, but I mean, for me, it was always about building sort of an OAuth um, for your information. So you could instantly give or retract access to your information to anyone, not just banks, but you know any kind of thing. And I, I used to talk about this idea that maybe one day you'll check into a hotel and it'll already have information from your nest at your house if you shared it and it's the same temperature at your house. Um, you know, some of the simplest things that you can imagine it could make a really great impact for a consumer. And ultimately, so much of your data is being monetized by people other than you. And that's what I really hate. Uh, so it's really, for me, it's about putting the consumer back in control. And I think open banking is a, is a great step in the right direction, but it can go so much further, honestly. So, Zach, um, we're about to open up to the audience. Uh, do you want to you have a special surprise for us? So I'll let you announce it. <laughs> well, I, so there's there's a couple things, but I, the the big one is uh, you know we have a, we actually have a, a code here for people to to get in. So obviously we're on invite only right now. Um, so I generated a code for tonight so folks could get in, and it'll last. I think I, I put several uh, I, I put quite a bit of invites on it, so everyone should have room for it, and I think it'll last to the end of the year. So if you're interested in signing up, uh, you have the ability to. Uh, that that code is 
it's just fintech cafe but it's it's on the end of a, a sign up link so i think we've we put it here in the channel and i think you you guys said you'll put it on your website so um hopefully everyone can find that and we'll be able to to get some more more people in testing us out and telling us what they think sure yeah so um i'm not able to mass message everybody who's on the call or who's on our show right now so what we'll do is uh, we have a website called fintechcafe.org and by later tonight i'll try to have the link up so this way you can follow that link and then open the the three percent apy account and see hopefully you'll get the three percent apy and then test it out and hopefully send zach and the team some feedback okay so with that we'll open i already have one question in the back channel but um, if anybody wants to raise their hand then come up there's an icon on the bottom right you can raise you can click on that button and then we'll bring you up um so in the meantime while questions come there's one from saeed zaman he's in the audience He's uh, from compliance, I believe, and he's asking, how has the pandemic influenced your plans on the digital space or any major learnings that has shaped your product roadmap? Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny for us because we launched in the pandemic and um, it's it's weird. When we made the decision to launch, we thought it would be over in a few weeks and we were kind of all we almost held it. We almost said, ah, maybe we shouldn't launch. Like maybe this is insensitive to launch a savings account in a world where like presumably a lot of people won't be able to save. Um, and then ironically, uh, in the last 12 months, savings is an all time high in the U S credit card debts an all time low. Uh, so it, it, um, you know, it's funny. I was, I was talking to our bank partner not that long ago and we were having this discussion and they said, well, you know, I think you thought that balances would be lower and you thought that maybe, um, you know, we would have more, more uh, balances carried on the credit card than you actually had. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on, guys. Like, if I could have predicted that we would be where we are today, I would be running a hedge fund, not a bank. Uh, you know, that's the reality is, like, this is not what we expected. It, it is it is different. We have – we were telling people we thought we'd have $5,000 average account balances. Our average account balance is over twenty, almost $25,000. So it's it's five times that, basically. Um, and if you look at direct depositors, it's, it's over $40,000. So – it's it's definitely been a, a very different you know road than we expected, but also it's led to some really great things. Like we have a lot, we have customers begging us for mortgages. You know, there's like a housing boom going on right now. We have thousand people you know getting houses every single month, and they're they're just begging us to do it and, and put it through one click credit. And so I think it, it is driving some of where we go next. But ultimately, it hasn't changed that much in the the game plan of what we had planned on building. Great, thank you. There's one more question uh, that came from the back channel, which I think is. Of interest, um, it's from, uh, he used to work with me at SoFi, and he's asking, basically, how do you manage to pay the 3% APY? Um, yeah, I think that's the gist of the questions, given the low interest rate environment. Yeah, I mean, the the short answer is, is like I said, when you, when you look at our cost of capital blended, it actually looks very similar to what a typical bank with a branch network would have. Um, and so our blended cost of capital comes out well below 2%. Um, and so it's not super cheap, obviously, you know, a lot of banks love to tout super low cost of capital, you know, it costs us 10 bips or, or whatever. The reality is a lot of times they're not baking in their marketing costs. They're not bringing in the branch network. We're also not handing our, our money to Zuck. You know, we're not paying Facebook for acquisition. Our customers are literally what's feeding other customers. So we haven't spent a dime on advertising in several months and we don't, um, our growth is 100% organic. Uh, and so a lot of what we would have spent otherwise you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars a month going to, to Facebook is just going back into the interest for our customers, which 
you know, my view on that is I would much rather pay my customers than I would pay Facebook. Uh, and so that's, that's the short answer is it's, it's really the, the full cycle of what we're doing. It's the fact that we're not doing a bunch of advertising. We have our customers advertising for us. Um, that's, that's really a reinforcing factor. And then the fact that we can actually lend off the balance sheet of the back end. So that's one of the big things that we do differently than uh, a typical FinTech. Most FinTechs have no ability to lend off the bank's deposits. We actually negotiated the right to lend the deposits. Uh, and so we actually, much like a typical bank, we have a real allocation strategy. You know, we, we go out and allocate assets. Um, you know, we have target yields and, and we try to make those. And so that's really the, the short answer is, you know, we, the deposit product is certainly a loss leader for us, but it's not nearly as much as people think. Um, and I think that's, that's why we're able to do it ultimately. Great. Thank you. So let's move to who we have in the audience. Hi, Kenny. Um, do you want to introduce yourself and ask your question? Uh, definitely. Thanks for, uh, having me on stage. My name is, uh, Kenny Groom. I'm currently a uh, senior uh, manager of uh, client success at VisitPay, which is a, a fintech in the, in the health space. Uh, but prior to this, I spent probably the first 10 years of my career um, in consumer finance, uh, working with uh, Synchrony Financial as my most recent employer in that space. So I'm pretty familiar with like the tiered structures act. So that's an amazing idea. Um, I've seen it apply to the to the retail space. So when you go to a lot of retailers, they have, you know, everything from bronze to gold tiers, essentially, that give people different perks and different um, amounts of points. So uh, definitely commend you for uh, taking some of that um, expertise there that sounds like you have and applying it to this space in terms of uh, savings accounts and, and that 3% APY, because I know that intrigues a lot of people there. Was that good enough? That was brilliant. <laughs> but do you Got have it. a question? Yeah, so my question is around... Um, you know, that 3% APY, right? That, that seems like a good number from a savings account perspective, but I'm curious to know like what your typical audience, uh, if you look at any of the demographics on the back end, is, because, you know, I, I myself, I'm a millennial, right? And, and, and so I'm curious to know if you're getting some of the millennials and the Gen Zs and the, whatever the newest generation is to actually kind of, um, you know, adopt this product because a lot of the people that I'm talking to within my network, they're actually, you know, first time, uh, first time investors and in a lot of things that are new crypto and just S and P overall, which is, you know, kind of a historical high. So I'm curious to know like what your typical demographic is for the folks who are, are, are being enticed by that 3% APY. Does that make sense? That Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. The, the short answer is, you know, the, the bulk of our audience, almost half, is 25 to 44. So it really is that millennial crowd. It's, it, you know, and I, I fall into that audience. I'm 34. Um, you know, I, I, I am a public markets investor. I have been for a long time. I am not a Robin Hood day trader. I am a buy and hold investor. Uh, so slightly different than I think than a lot of what some of this generation is doing. But ultimately, it's a lot of people that are thinking about, hey, like, I, I want to keep some reasonable amount of money parked. One of the things that we do very differently uh, than most banks is, you know, most banks, they pay based on how much money you have. Um, I felt very strongly we should never segment someone on how much money they have, um, probably because I grew up without much money. And so I didn't think that was fair. Um, but, you know, one of the big, bigger reasons for that is because if you pay this rate and you get it to a, like an account holder that's got $10 million, you can really sink yourself. So at H&B, we actually only pay up to the first $100,000. And the reason we chose that is because really once you get past that, you should probably be doing something else with your money. Should probably be putting it in a, you know, in the S and P, or you should probably be putting it into some types of 
you know, something something else in the market that's not just idle cash, because ultimately idle cash doesn't do that much for you. Um, but you should have some cushion of savings. And I think that's really what the core of audience is doing is they're they're putting, you know, their three to six month savings here. Um, you know, they're they're starting to put their paychecks in and, you know, and use it as their kind of de- core default account. But they're, they're keeping themselves a cushion. And I think that's really the way that we view it. Uh, that's the way I use my account. Um, and so really, uh, if you look at the audience, what's really interesting is we have as many people over 55 as we do under 25. So it is a very, very blended audience. Um, you know, we, you know, like I said, almost 50% is that 25 to 44 range, but we've got retirees and snowbirds and we've got Gen Zers and we've got kind of everything in between. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, we, we certainly compete with some of the people like you see BlockFi and kind of what they're doing. I, I got a text message yesterday from a friend of mine that said, wow, your rates are so good. I'm actually moving money from BlockFi to you guys. Like, you know, and that, that's kind of, you know, where we've gotten is like, we're, we're actually pretty competitive with some of those guys and we're you know providing FDIC insurance, a little bit more protection. And that gives a lot of people peace of mind as well, which I think is helpful. Thanks for that breakdown, Zach. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the split that you said with the, the millennial crowd, that's um surprising to me. But like you said, the way that you explained it, it definitely makes sense why people are connecting and using the product. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, we'll move now to Marcel. Hi, Marcel. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, well, I'm a UX designer and I work in finance. And my question basically was, what is the most important aha moment that changed your product from an original MVP? Yeah, that's a great question. Also, Marcel, if you want a job, please reach out. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the the way that the way that we think about it, and the way that that we've always built everything is to use the data to teach us. Uh, and so, one of the things that we do is we use a lot of events that are fired. So, when someone clicks on something, we're we're using segment very heavily in the back end to kind of track those clicks and what's going on and what we're doing. One of the best examples I have of that recently is we were combing back to the data and trying to understand how people are using the products and what they're not doing. We put out surveys to customers and uh, in looking at it, we noticed that we had people um, that were parking uh, a smaller sum of their paycheck here and then using other credit cards rather than ours, but then using ours for a very limited amount of spend. And we were like, oh, why is this happening? And so we went back and kind of looked at what was happening in their connected accounts. And we realized like, oh, like they, they think of us as like, oh, I have to save. And so if I have to save, I can't possibly like spend money here because that would be bad. Uh, and so what we did was we actually went out to our customers and we said, hey, um, starting now, if you spend on your credit card and you pay from your Bradley account, uh, we actually won't kind of get your savings here at all. Um, and so what we're saying is like, it doesn't matter how much you spend. If you're paying it from the H Bradley account, this will be there. Um, and essentially you'll, you'll get paid a higher rate just for using both products. And what that did was an increased credit card spend dramatically, essentially overnight. Uh, and so in the last two months, we've literally quadrupled the spend that we've seen on the card month over month. Um, because of, of just looking at the data and listening to the customer and, and trying to adjust to, to what they're doing. Thank you. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thanks, Marcel. And Sean, hi. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my name is Sean Scott. I'm a uh, principal product manager at a, at, at a mean uh, bank, <laughs> one of those uh, old bank and study banks. Um, so um, it's just been sort of a kind of a wonderf- uh, wonderful, and I think as the other folks have said on stage, sort of that, that tier structure is, is, sort of very, is very creative. 
Um, I had a question from a, from a user perspective, I, you know, I, I guess from a product perspective when looking at your users with a high APY, do you tend to see sort of folks that come in um, and park money and, and sort of leverage just the high APY almost as they would a, a CD? Uh, and I, I guess from, from your perspective, is that okay? Or, or what would be sort of a, an ideal sort of a customer of HM Bradley for, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is you want all types of customers. Uh, we certainly have those customers. We told everyone before we ever launched, we would we would have those customers. I think our belief going in was like the people who chase yield will ultimately find whoever the highest yield is. One of the beautiful parts about tiers is our belief is we will always be able to have the highest yield in the market on one end. And that means working with gamers is okay. If they want to come in and just park money and, and put money in every month, we're going to know that's a really stable deposit that we can go out and lend. And we're, and we're okay with doing that. Um, and certainly, like, will it be a loss leader? Absolutely. But will it allow us to have a really stable deposit base? Absolutely. Um, it's also not tied to time. One of the things that a lot of new bankers make, and mistakes bankers make, when they, like, when, when someone first becomes CEO of a bank, one of the first things they want to do is, like, they want to go to that CD market and, you know, get as much deposits as possible and go out and leverage those. And then those are what regulators typically refer to as hot deposits. Um, with us, since we require a direct deposit, we actually like, we're, we're looking at what you're saving month over month. We have a really good way to formulate how long is this deposit going to be here based on what this account is doing, how they're using it, what other accounts are tied to it, like what they're paying out of it. All those things make a difference. And so what it really allows us to do is, is build a really sound model of like, how long will these deposits be here? About how much will we have? If we model this out in the next six months, what will that look like? And I think one of the most surprising things is that some of these people that we thought were just going to come in and park money, they've come in and they've parked money. Uh, and then over time, they've actually brought in larger chunks of money and then larger direct deposits and now like have shifted a lot of their financial life to H&M Bradley. So where we raised our, our seed round, you know, like 10, 10, 11 months ago, or sorry, series A, series A round 10, 11 months ago, we only had, I think, 16 accounts with over $100,000 in them. If you look at it today, we have over a thousand accounts with over a hundred thousand dollars in them. And you know, again, once you have over a hundred K, we're not paying you interest on that extra money. Uh, and so it's people that are really saying, you know what, I'm getting enough out of H and Bradley, getting enough out of being here, and my bank's not doing anything for me on the other side. Why do I park the rest of it somewhere else when I'm just bringing it all over? And I think that's one of the things that's been really exciting for us is learning that like we're winning over people over time slowly by just aligning ourselves with them. Awesome, thank you. Thanks, Sean. We'll move to Alejandro. Hi, Alejandro. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Zach. Uh, thanks for uh, coming to speak with us. Uh, the question is, how, how did you go about defining success metrics? And then how did they change if they did change post-launch? And before, Zach, you answer, Alejandro, can you give us an introduction of yourself? Yeah. So uh, my name is Alejandro. I am a UX researcher. Um, uh, in a fintech company. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, uh, the, the beginning was very easy. It was, um, grow deposits. That was basically it. Um, you know, we said, look, we want to grow deposits. Uh, and the reason that we had to do that was because we were always planning on lending those deposits. And so growing them was going to matter. Um, the way that, that we started was just, okay, that's the metric that we're going to care about. We're going to care about deposits. Everyone else, in this industry, for whatever reason, has decided that accounts are what matters. I We didn't really want accounts with no money in them. We didn't want non-usage. We were not looking for that. We were looking for, can we actually win over someone's wallet share? Uh, and so that was the metric in the beginning. Uh, eventually that expanded. Uh, there's a, you know, a mildly um, 
mildly famous t-shirt on Twitter uh, that says, uh, grow deposits, more credit cards, commercial lending, which is the t-shirt that I wear for a lot of our team events. That just reminds our team, those are the three things that we worry about right now. Like, can we get more deposits in? Can we put more credit cards out to our customer base? And can we ultimately lend to, you know, different, uh, either different businesses or, you know, obviously buying, buying different assets, those kinds of things. Um, but all those things are really drivers of the business as well. Um, you know, when you look at the customer success metrics, the thing was what percentage of people convert to direct deposit for us, that's really high. So if you look at funded accounts, 88% of our funded accounts have a direct deposit with us on any given moment. Uh, and that, that includes the, the fact that we open, you know, hundreds of accounts of a day that like aren't actually going to be a direct deposit for the next 30 to 45 days in most cases. Um, so it's just a very high percentage of our, our consumers actually convert into being direct depositors. Uh, that was one of the things that we always cared about. That's why we paid interest based on that. And so I think the the short answer is not only did we think about like what those metrics were, but we also, we tried to build our product around what those metrics were going to be from the start. Uh, and so when you look at our account, you know, one of, one of my proudest moments as the founder of this company probably was after we had just launched, I had a PM from Robinhood call me um, and he, he said, Hey, I'd love to talk. And I said, yeah, sure. And I sent him my cell and he, he's like, look, I opened an account. I didn't even know that I could use it if I didn't have a direct deposit. And I started laughing and I said, good. And he said, but why? And I said, because it, it, ultimately that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a deeper core relationship with the consumer. Uh, and we've tried to bake that in. And so when you looked at the deposit account, when you came in, it literally in the top right corner said, open a direct or set up a direct deposit, start earning interest. And that's everything that we've done. We've kind of baked in those success goals and everything that we've measured, we've, we've measured, you know, based on, did that work? What does that what does that conversion rate look like? Um, and so all the funnels that were built were built with both the product and the business business metrics in mind from the start. And even now in the way that we build products, we're you know one of the things that we do internally is we write the customer announcement for the product before we ever build anything. That's that's kind of the first phase. We have what we call a one pager, um, which lays out the business requirements and what we're doing. And then we have the customer announcement email, which is what we're going to tell a customer about this. Even if we don't actually announce it, we write the email. Um, and the idea is to really align our team around the, these are the business requirements and why we're doing it. And this is how we're explaining it to the customer and why we think it should be important to them. And those two things combined allow us to write a product requirements doc that really actually gets down to the meat of what is this trying to accomplish and how are we going to measure it? And one of the sections in the, in the product requirements document, not surprisingly, is how do we measure success? Um, and there, there's a retro at the end of every single new product release. Uh, and we do a look back at three months out on every new product release just to see how are we lining against those metrics and is there something we need to change? That's awesome. Thank you so much for that answer. I think sometimes, uh, in my experience, sometimes I think we forget to differentiate between business goals and product goals and how they align with the user. So this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Alejandro. And next we have Anand. He actually had sent a question through the back channel, but I'm glad he can join us to ask his follow-up. So hi, Anand. Yeah, hi, uh, uh, Zach. Nice conversation and thanks, Ambika. Uh, quick question. When you grow up and say you have millions of accounts, who, how do you see yourself? Uh, do you compare to Chime or Cash App or do you, do you stand differently? And then second question I had, and I'm a big fan of credit cards. How did you choose a credit card as opposed to, say, a personal loan or something else in terms of lending? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, and I think the first 
answer this first question will probably also tell you what the what the second answer will, will somewhat be. But I actually think the future of Rachel Bradley is is something between uh, J.P. Morgan and American Express. Um, I think we have a chance to build something that's a lasting generational bank um, for you know a, a more you know normal to like you know upper middle class consumer. Uh, and that's that's kind of the the way that we look at it, and the way that the customer base is. Um, we already see it in the spend. We see it in what's going on. And a big part of the reason for this is, I think Chime and and a lot of these other players have done a really great job of of acquiring a customer that, frankly, J.P. Morgan doesn't want, uh, and has has not tried to get for a long time because they're expensive to service in their eyes, and it's not not a valuable customer to them. Um, and for us, I think our view was. That's great that all these people like Chime, but like Chime's got nothing for me. I can't get a credit card. I can't get a mortgage from them. I, I'm not getting a car loan from them. So I had no choice but to bank at one of the old big banks. Um, and and ultimately, when I think about you know a JP or you know a, a US bank or a, you know any any of the bigger players, I don't think of them badly. I just think of them as the, the experience is actually what the problem is for me as a consumer. The experience hasn't changed since my grandparents were banking with them. And, you know, what, what we think about and what I usually tell our employees is we kind of rally around this idea of Netflix. Netflix in the early days was just like, it was just blockbuster, but it was over the mail and they, they didn't charge you a late fee. And that was like mildly better and it was enough to get some consumers in the door. Uh, but as they grew up, they, they started doing things slightly differently. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't just in the mail anymore. Now you could stream any movie that you wanted instantly. And like that was a way better value prop to a consumer. And then that was like, oh, that's what they're doing. And then eventually what you saw was it, it wasn't you know just that. It was, hey, here's a recommendation algorithm. We already know what you're going to watch. And then people said, oh, that's what they're doing. And it just became more and more addicting. And then eventually what they've gotten to now and, and where they are today is – they actually build content based on what they already know that you want to watch. And I think people right now are sitting around going, oh, that's what they were doing. And I guarantee you they're not done yet. And the way that we think about building banking products is, is exactly the way that Amazon thinks about building for white little brands and the way that Netflix thinks about building for content, which is where we can have a unique advantage. We should go and build that product for our customer because we understand them really well. And where we can't, we should actually give it to someone else. And so when we look at the long-term future of this product, I think it, it actually looks a little bit more like, you know, a, a place where you come first, but like you might actually end up getting a, you know, JP Morgan Chase credit card or, uh, you know, a, a, a loan from a firm on the H&M Bradley platform through one-click credit as easily as you can get a, an H&M Bradley product. I think the reason for that is because we know that we can't be the bank for everyone, but we want to be the place that you stop first because you feel like you're getting all the information that you need. Um, you know, and then on the credit card side, the reason for the credit card product was simply that we just, we use them as consumers. I think I, you know, I hinted on it earlier, but ultimately, you know, if, if you're swiping a debit card, you're, you're losing money on every transaction. Um, credit cards can be a really great tool for consumers. as they can get in trouble with them. They've been pitted really poorly against the industry. Like, oh, these credit cards are terrible things. And the reality is a credit card is not a terrible thing. It's actually a, a very fine tool. It's a, it's a way to essentially use someone else's money for a short period of time. As long as you get in the habit of paying it off and you're thinking about it, I think that's what really matters. And I think one of the things, frankly, that you'll see from Major Bradley at some point is a charge card uh, because we think that's another great way to really align that habit and build that habit. And that's that's the way that we think about how our consumer is and what they're doing. If they're really transactors and they're they're trying to get the most out of something, and we think we can help them do that. Yeah, I agree completely. And do you think about uh, any brokerage account down the road or do you – 
Yeah, we just... have to. I think it's yeah. it's a it's a necessity with our user base. I mean, we probably get ah, several hundred requests a month at this point of like, hey, like, when can I you know put my my brokerage account here? And so I think it's just right. a necessity, and we'll we'll definitely do it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, looks like we have an Andres on the stage as well. Hi, Andres. I'm going to skip the intro disc for expediency. Um, Zach, you mentioned that you want to be the next uh, JP or Amex. I think those are lofty ambitions. I think you'll get there at, at some point soon. But at some point, that'll probably necess- necessitate a, a bank charter. Um, what do you see in terms of the future of H.M. Bradley? When do you think you would you would approach a charter? Um, would it be through acquisition? Do you would you go through the whole hurdle of getting your own? Um, and is that something in uh, like? Is, are you thinking that short term or long term? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very astute observation. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. This is something we have to do eventually. We we would hundred percent know this. Um, a little known fact about H. Bradley is that we actually, before we ever built anything, went to the Federal Reserve and got permission to buy part of a bank. Um, so I've, I've been all the way to the Board of Governors in D.C. to, to actually be a shareholder in a bank. Um, you know, And it was because we felt like that was the right way to go about this. We felt like we should start as a minority shareholder first. Um, we ended up not pursuing that route because our current bank partner made us a better deal um, and we were able to kind of make something work. Uh, but yeah, we, we have to do that. I think the one thing I will say is... Um, even though I'm acknowledging that we have to do that and there, there will certainly be that in our future at some point, uh, you will never see an agent Bradley press release about us applying for a bank charter or us, you know, becoming a bank. Like for us, that's just a natural you know path. It's, it's the natural progression of our business and what we're doing. And it, it certainly makes us more profitable over time. Um, but it, it's not something that we think we need to like openly celebrate or talk about. Uh, in fact, you know, we've been we've had dialogue with regulators since day one. We we've always felt like that was the right thing to do. Um, but but for us, it's really more about building the customer experience first and make sure we get that right. And I think, you know, as we as we cross that chasm of you know billions of dollars in deposits, which we'll we'll you know cross this year, frankly, um, I think that becomes a lot more realistic on kind of what we have to do. Great, thank you, Andres. Any follow up to that, or was that good for you? No, that was great. Thanks. Okay, great. And last question I have for you, Zach, is um, I saw Wade in the audience. He was our guest last week, uh, Wade from Move Financial. You will be speaking on on his uh, FinTech DevCon, which is September 7th, I believe, uh, in Denver. Could you talk more about what your presentation will be about at the FinTech DevCon? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm doing two things there. Uh, so I, I'm giving a workshop on, um, you know, ironically, um, you know, the building something for your customers and how you do that. And so kind of give a workshop on kind of the things that we did and, and what we tried to do, uh, how we tried to learn. And then all, obviously where we failed, because I think that's where you learn the most is where your failures are. Um, and then I'm actually part of a panel, which I'm actually really excited about because it's, uh, it's Shamir, uh, who was the founder of Simple and Maya, who founded Pension is now really the voice of the customer at Chime. Uh, I have no idea why they let me on this panel. I'm super excited to hang out with those two and hopefully soak up some knowledge and learn. Uh, and Jason Hendricks is, is the the uh, host there. So I think it's going to be a really fun panel. And um, I think there's a, there's a slight competition going around Twitter on 
what's going to be the best panel at, at uh, FinTech DevCon. Uh, it's not really a competition. We'll obviously win that. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking about, you know, the different challenger banks and kind of what we're doing and how we're thinking about it uh, on that panel as well. I love your confidence, Zach. <laughs> Great. Well, we're coming to the conclusion. There is one last question and um, it's from James. He's also in the audience. He's a developer with a fintech company and he's asking, having done startups before, how has your leadership style evolved? Oh man, so many ways. Uh, you know, the short answer, I came into this one thinking that I had seen everything, right? Like, oh, this is my fourth one. It can't be any harder. Like I've, I've kind of seen all the hard things and then a pandemic happened and suddenly I'm running a company with employees in 11 states. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I think the thing that I've learned this time around is actually the importance of building a written culture. So one of my stated goals for 2021 this year was to actually get better at building a written culture, writing more things down, building more documentation, um, you know, and really trying to kind of lay out the why as, as much as we can in everything that we do, uh, not just in the product process, but also just in the, the how we work in the, how we spend our company's money. You know, we have a, a very large company wiki that talks about everything from like what, how much insurance percentage the company covers to how you should spend on your corporate credit card. Um, and all those things matter in, a, in an environment where I, I really can't see everyone. I, I haven't met everyone face to face. I don't see them in the office every day. And so it, it, that's, I think the way that we've evolved the most is just how we think about, you know, building a written culture and, and making very clear, um, you know, what the goals are for everything that we're doing, how, how we're thinking about building products, but also just how we generally run the company and what we value, you know, things like, how do you disagree with somebody? Because disagreeing with someone is very important in my eyes, but doing it the wrong way or, you know, sometimes over Slack that can be very well, or like very poorly communicated. Um, you know, so we even have a, you know, a section on, uh, on, on everyone's notion page on sort of how they deal with conflict and, um, how they think about it. And I think that's actually a really helpful thing for all of us to kind of understand how does this person take feedback? Um, you know, those are all really important things and you have to adapt and evolve. And I think that's the thing I learned here is you'll never be prepared no matter what, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many companies you build. This is, uh, it's always an interesting endeavor one way or another. Sounds like parenting. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't have kids, but I imagine it's a lot like parenting. <laughs> Great. Um, Munisha, was there another question? Uh, one last one uh, from Rahul, who's in the audience, but it's fairly early India time. So he's passed this question along. Zach, uh, do you have any views on how the H.M. Bradley model could apply to some of the international markets? Is that a part of your plans? He, uh, Rahul works in India, so I think he's coming from the international angle. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a company in India called Cred um, that looks a lot like Agent Bradley, actually. Um, and they've they've raised a lot more money than us. Uh, Kunal and I, I, I've gotten to know him recently. Very, very good guy. They started in a different place. They started on the credit card side and now have moved to the the kind of tiered deposit account, ironically. And so him and I have had a lot of great conversations. I think you'll see them kind of take this model and run with it. I, I think my view is that we certainly could do that. Um, it's certainly something that we'll think about over time. Uh, it'll always be a buy versus build equation as well. Um, but also the U.S. is a very large market. I think one of the stats that I love to throw out there is that on any given day in the U.S., there are four banks worth over $100 billion each. Uh, you know, the top five banks in the U.S. are, are, are worth uh, about $1.1 trillion. 
Um, and uh, sorry, that's the top four. Uh, and then numbers five through 100 are worth another 1.4 trillion. Um, so there's a lot of market cap to be had in banking in the U.S. And we feel like we can, we have a lot of room to build a, a very large company here. Um, you know, no offense to my mother's old employer, but, you know, I always joke that Regions is a $20 billion bank that almost no one's ever heard of. And I think that's a lot of what the opportunity is in banking today. Great. Thank you. Um, well, with that, we are over time. I just want to announce that um, Zach today came and he talked about H.M. Bradley, the vision, and he's also offering us um, a referral code to try out his uh, saving account, which is technically a checking account. So we already posted the code on our website, so you can go to fintechcafe.org. So at the top, you'll see a link to, which will direct you to H.M. Bradley's website, so then you can then apply there for a checking account. So Zach, thank you so much for extending us that privilege. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. And uh, hopefully, hopefully it wasn't, uh, wasn't too boring for anybody. No, you're a great speaker. And I love your confidence. <laughs> I can, I need to uh, emulate some of it. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks everyone on stage who came to ask your question. And uh, yeah, again, please check the website, fintechcafe.org. You can access the referral, referral code there for the saving account. So with that, we have come to the conclusion of our show. Next week, we'll be joined by the founder and CEO of STEP, CJ McDonald. So we'll talk more about um, fintech development, but in the minors, fintech for minors space next week. Thanks again, Zach. Yeah, thank you, thank everyone. You. Have a good yeah. night. Mm -hmm.